Do you believe in ghosts? Well, I believe in great magazines. So, of course, I need to talk your ears off about Fangoria, one of the premier brands in horror. Fangoria has been delivering quality magazines since 1979, and each collectible issue features exclusive articles about your favorite monsters as well as up-and-coming terrors. Be sure to check out the Fangoria store website for subscriptions and a bunch of cool merch. And while you're there, use promo code WOULDYOUDIESHOW for 20% off your entire order. That's right, 20% off your entire order. Applies to subscription and one-time orders. Applies to the first subscription order only. Now it's time to talk about Crimson Peak. Death has come to your little town, Sheriff. Have you ever felt a knife cut through human flesh and scrape the bone beneath? You're gonna need a bigger boat. Be my victim. You are all my children now. Hello, my name is Austin Torres, and welcome to the Woody Die Podcast, the show where we talk about our favorite horror monsters and villains. Today, I'm joined by actor, director, and stage manager who has graced both the stage and the screen. Please welcome my friend, Amanda Buckalter. Hi, and you did get that right, so thank you. <laughs> I almost did. I almost didn't. Uh, everyone listening, you might hear that slight hesitation because i was about to say it completely different but i'm like i literally just asked this question i'm not gonna get it wrong and uh that's why i hesitated for this for the split second i hope people don't notice and you know what i edit these but i'm gonna leave that in because i have integrity (laughs) (laughs) no it was great get on (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Uh, Today, I'm excited because we are talking about the fantastic Guillermo del Toro gothic horror film Crimson Peak. I think it's from 2015 or 2016. It's it's mid 2010s. And I've never seen it before. So I'm really excited because I watched it for the first time and I got opinions. I got thoughts and I'm excited to get into them. But first, what I really want to know, Amanda, is uh, what's your relationship with horror? It's kind of interesting because I kind of grew up watching horror, but at the same time, I don't really feel like I got into it until I was almost in college. So as a kid, I used to come home from like trick-or-treating at Halloween and my dad would be watching Halloween or something like that. Uh, And I'd always sit down and, and watch it with him and then end up having nightmares for like weeks after watching it so you know it was one of those things where I would sit down and watch stuff with my dad but I probably shouldn't have been watching it but I also have very very fond memories of movies like The Blob or or some of those like really great classic horror movies and watching those with my dad too so yeah it's it's all good stuff I I would say I stopped for a while in like middle school and high school because I decided that the nightmares weren't worth it but in college I actually I got cast in something that we did that was called Dead Gallery which was a an original um an original sort of showcase that was written by students uh Michael Herman and it was like this great little almost circus of of different acts and and I got to play a a cursed puppet of sorts. And I just remember falling in love with creating that frightening, non, non-threatening 
if you can hear the air quotes that I just put <laughs> up there, non-threatening experiences for people. And from there, I just also started watching and consuming horror more as college went on. That's awesome. I, uh, I actually had a similar trajectory, I think, to you because when I was growing up, everything scared me. So I wouldn't have considered myself a horror fan except I loved monsters. So if I had a monster in it, I would watch it. So like like movies like Jurassic Park and Jaws were big for me. And then creature features like Anaconda and Lake Placid, those fun types of movies. And then I was also really, really big into like Godzilla and the classic Universal monsters. But I was scared of but like. I didn't I didn't realize those were horror until I was in college. And then I'm like, wait, I've been a horror fan forever. And then movie movies like uh, Halloween and um, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and the Evil Dead and the Shining, like a lot of those Mm -hmm. were first time watches while I was in college. (laughs) Yeah, same exact thing. There's a lot of stuff that I liked as a kid, like Jurassic Park and that sort of thing. It's so interesting to think about like the difference between a thriller versus a horror movie versus a psychological thriller and like Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. And I would say I didn't get into horror until I was older, but I've always been a fan of like a good thriller movie, even as a kid. And it's it's interesting because like I feel like sometimes when you're growing up, you don't realize something's horror and then. Or you don't realize you're a horror fan. Because when I was in high school, I was huge into Scream. Yeah. And I loved the original Nightmare on Elm Street and and like The Ring. But but I didn't think I was a horror fan. But I watched all the Final Destination movies. But I didn't think I was a horror fan. It wasn't until college where I'm like, wait a second. I, I'm a fan. I can say that, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And now yeah. Uh, and now I embrace it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what's what's not to embrace, right? And I think my brother had a big influence on that, too, because he's always been into things like some of the Japanese horror that's out Mm. there and which is a whole other level, in my opinion, of of spooky and intense. Um, Yeah. 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 There's a couple of things that I probably shouldn't have watched when I watched it, but (laughs) that's okay. You live and you learn and you move on question mark uh yeah so my dad and my brother are are largely responsible for introducing me to all of that that's awesome you mentioned um while you're in college that you did a uh a, it was a play written by students and there was mm-hmm. horror and um what other horror projects have you done i am so glad that you asked this question so i did dead gal Dead Gallery three years in a row, which is obviously the thing I already mentioned. But I've also been super, super fortunate to be involved in a couple of really great horror projects and anthologies and that sort of thing over the last decade or so, which is wild to be able to say that. But uh, I think the three biggest things that I'm proudest of right now is the Penny Seats Theater Company in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Um, has been doing this series called The Penny Dreadfuls for the last six years. So every year we've been doing a a play, uh, usually set in the Victorian era, but we've started to branch out from that a little bit. 
that follows one of those Penny Dreadful monsters. So we've done vampires, we've done Jekyll and Hyde, we've done mummies. This year we did werewolves with the Van Beast, uh, which we actually just closed a couple of weeks ago. It was a great, great show. Shout out to the partial wolf pack, the whole wolf pack. Um, <laughs> it's just been really incredible to, to watch it develop. And, and the person who pitched the idea, Joe Zettelmeyer, he's got very big plans for it. Even though he is stepping away from the company, he's, he's set up this path for us to follow to continue the Penny Dreadful series, which is, is super exciting. And it's just been so cool to watch it go from this small, just little inkling of an idea to something that people look forward to every year. Um, and it, I think it's brought a lot of Michigan artists together too, which is cool. And actually, that's a great segue because that series is actually what brought me to some of the next projects that I'm super excited about and super grateful to have been involved in. One of the first Penny Dreadfuls that we did was Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by uh, Jeffrey, Hat Jeffrey Hatcher, his adaptation of that story. And it was just such a cool adaptation. And that's where I met uh, Michael and Josie Herman. Um, they were not married at the time, but they have since gotten married. <laughs> um, and they wrote this really great podcast called The Call of the Void Podcast uh, and asked me to audition for, for the part of Simone Summers. Uh, over the course of the show. And it's this great horror podcast that's, it's an audio drama that's set in New Orleans and follows uh, my character Simone and Topher and Etsy as they try and navigate this unknown force that's started to fester in the swamps of New Orleans. Uh, there's three seasons. It's we won some audio drama awards. It's we're really fortunate and very very proud of that one. Um, that's awesome. So, so that's my my early self pitch on that one. Please listen to the Call <laughs> of the Void podcast. It's complete. It's done. It's it's beautifully written, beautifully acted, and just really a labor of love uh, that I will gladly gush about for for. The whole hour, if you would let me, but we'll <laughs> talk a little bit about the same group of people, Michael and Josie, a wonderful, wonderful group, again, of Michigan artists came together. Michael and Josie decided that they wanted to write a film, um, <laughs> which is actually also based on another one of the Penny Dreadful plays. Michael wrote a play based on the Jewel of the Seven... Sees, I think it's called Bram Stoker's um, novel, Jewel of the Seven Stars. Nice. So yeah, it's an adaptation by the Jewel of the Seven Stars by Bram Stoker. And it's sort of the play is a mummy's curse and the film House of Ka, which we just had our private showing for it. And I think it's going to be making its rounds in the film festivals starting this year so fingers fingers crossed on that that was a wonderful wonderful experience i'd love to be able to say where you could watch it when but uh those details aren't known quite gotcha i understand that <laughs> yeah yeah 
but it's, it's, you know, it's been really cool. And I feel like I've been really fortunate in that I've sort of become a part of this great, wonderful, homey community of people that just come together to make spooky, heartfelt stories every year, at least every year. And, you know, if you would have asked me 10 years ago, if I thought that is what I would be doing, I would have said no. But I really, I've really fallen in love with telling those sorts of stories because I feel like I feel like horror is one of those ways of intensifying a point and and building those metaphors and being able to talk about something that you might not otherwise be able to explain. I think the Call of the Void is a really good example of that. Of um, and I, I have talked about this before on like a Q&A I did for The Call of the Void. But, you know, that show was a show about isolation and finding your people and and keeping and taking care of each other. And that came out almost on top of the pandemic when we were all isolated from each other. And so being able to tell that story and and hearing from people how much it meant to them meant and, and still means the world to me. And I think I can say for Michael and Josie as well, you know, it's it's an honor to be able to to tell those stories and have it mean something to people. And I feel like horror is a really good and accessible way to be able to do that. Oh, for sure. Something I'm uh, I'm always interested in, especially when I have the opportunity to talk to actors, I feel like actors generally they get to play in a lot of different genre sandboxes Mm -hmm. so i'm assuming and maybe i shouldn't assume but i'm assuming you've got to do a bunch of different types of roles and a bunch of different types of projects as an actor what sets horror apart from a drama or a straight comedy or or something different yeah that's a that's a great question it's a lot of times the stakes are just higher in in a horror you know it's and it it does kind of play off of that metaphor but you know in a comedy the stakes still might be high but it's not high usually unless it's a dark comedy uh <laughs> are not high are not high in the way that our world is ending i my i am at risk of life and limb and so on top of these difficult emotional things that you're usually navigating within a horror story there's also the actual threat of a concrete ending and and that just adds a whole other layer to your character that you get to play with whether that's desperation or being driven to something that your character may have otherwise thought of as as unthinkable you know you you might start off as this sweet young kid at the beginning of this story arc that you're telling. And then by the end of the film, you've killed three people because you needed to stay alive, you know? So it's just navigating those. It feels like challenge isn't, isn't even an adequate word, but it's just the stakes are higher and it does drive humans, people, to their limit. That's what's so horrific about it. I feel like horror often does look at riding the line between being 
a human and humane or not right. very much. Yeah. And, and what is the breaking limit of that? I think that's really intriguing. And I, I love that you bring that up because, well, I'm not an actor, so I can't speak from an actor's standpoint, but I am a fan, you know, and I feel like when you watch horror, that allows you to engage with very dark subject matters in a safe way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I fully agree with that. And and I think like I like I've said multiple times already, it's it's the metaphor, you know, that's there's always a point that they're trying to make. And our monsters are those things that seem insurmountable, like loneliness or grief or a secret that you have to keep or something like that. Those those are the hypothetical monsters. And I'm glad that we're kind of um, talking about this, like normally the podcast doesn't get this heavy, if I'm being <laughs> perfectly honest, but I'm glad yeah, we're sorry. talking about, no, 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 it's great. I'm glad we're talking about this, this side of horror because I think a lot of these themes are present in Crimson Peak. Mm-hmm. And I finally watched Crimson Peak. I know, guys, I've been slacking. Came out <laughs> mid-2010, so I'm a couple years late. But for a first watch, it doesn't... I don't think it's a straight horror film in the same way that a movie like The Exorcist or Halloween is. I think uh, Crimson Peak has a lot of elements of romance. I think it is a romance movie. Mm -hmm. It's very gothic. I think it's a period drama as well. Mm -hmm. And but, you know, it's also a horror movie because the stakes are high. <laughs> mm -hmm. There's death, there's murder. And I think, well, spoilers. If you haven't seen Crimson Peak, there's going to be spoilers throughout this episode. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but like there's a very horrific death scene that yeah. it's brutal. <laughs> Which one? <laughs> If that's fair. I'm I'm specifically thinking of the of the murder of the father in the bathroom. Uh, yeah, that one's that one's hard to watch. Yeah. And I feel like I feel like that's part of what I like about Crimson Peak, though, is there isn't a single death in Crimson Peak that isn't heart wrenching, right. in my opinion. There's all, you know, even again, spoilers. So if you have any intention or haven't watched it at this point, stop listening now. Yeah. <laughs> um, there isn't a single, single death that isn't heart wrenching. Even, even the death of, oh my goodness, I can't remember her name. The sister. Um, Jessica Chastain's character? Yes, Jessica Chastain's character. Even, even her death in her desperation and her psychosis and this sort of, pseudo betrayal that happens within the sharp family because thomas sharp has fallen in love it's beautiful and it's heart-wrenching and and it's her own refusal to let life change in the way that it must that is ultimately her undoing yeah and that's tr that's tragic in a lot of ways yet yeah, and it's and, you know, they are, I think Guillermo del Toro is a fascinating and fantastic filmmaker because all of his films, I feel like, not only blend a lot of genre lines, mm -hmm. but they really, really delve deep into the characters at the heart of the story. 
and the the uh the siblings tom hiddleston and jessica chastain they uh i'm sorry i only watched the movie once i do not remember their names it's okay it's uh, i think it's lucille <laughs> i think her name is okay. lucille having thought about it for a second lucille and thomas and then i'm gonna i'm gonna pull yeah. up trusty google for a second i, I got it i got it up <laughs> Yeah, Jessica Chastain's Lucille Sharp, Tom Hiddleston's Thomas Sharp, Charlie yeah. Hunnam is Dr. Alan McMichael, mm-hmm. uh, Mia Wasikowska. I have no clue if I said her name right, but she's a great actress. She plays Edith Cushing, mm-hmm. which yeah, I love. I, that. I adore her. Yeah. But uh, Burn Gorman is in it, and he's in a lot of Del Toro flicks. And I and he was in this fantastic film that came out last year called Watcher. Um, with Michael oh, Monroe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, oh, and then uh, Doug Jones and Javier Bocat. I was Bocat just about to say, I it. was just about to say <laughs> Doug Jones. Shout out to Doug Jones, the ultimate like motion capture, special effects, makeup actor. Shout out to him. But I could go, that's another thing I could go on and on about. With oh, we will. Is, we... It's just the practical effects. Oh, my God. I thought you were about to talk. I thought you were going to say, uh, Oh, you could go on and on about Doug Jones. I'm like, okay, let's do it. I uh <laughs> yes. I uh got to meet Doug Jones once at a horror convention and he was the coolest, nicest guy. I'm so glad to hear that. It's good. You always wonder, right? Of like, okay, they do all this great work. Hopefully they're also like a nice human being. Well, I um I like to spend my money. And one thing I like to spend my money on is conventions. Mm-hmm. But I go to a lot of horror conventions and I feel like a lot of people in the horror space, they're just nice. Yeah. I always joke that the person who's playing the villain is almost always the nicest person in the cast. And like, I, I think there's truth in that because uh, like some of the nicest people I've met and, you know... If you're paying a uh, paying sixty bucks for a scribble on a piece of paper, you kind of hope they're nice. <laughs> ideally, ideally, yes. But like you know, I got to meet Doug Jones, and he's super nice and amazing. I've got to meet Doug Bradley, who plays Pinhead, and you th- you know that's oh, yeah one of the most intimidating <laughs> characters in all of cinema. And Doug Bradley was super nice and super kind. I'm not gonna go and say a bunch of you know. Yeah, I, I do think there's something to be said about the fact that and and I think a lot of people say that about horror fans, because uh, sometimes a horror fan can look a little scary. We're we're usually all tatted up and have like piercings and dyed hair and <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and wearing Chucky shirts or whatever. But like you talk to a horror fan and it's just like. What's your favorite Christmas movie? Yours is Gremlins. Mine is Gremlins. Are like, like, oh, you like Jason more than Freddy? I get that. I'm the other way around, but they're both awesome. Like, they're usually super cool, you know? Yeah, just like understanding. It's like it's like that picture of like the punk with like the biggest mohawk you ever see holding a flower out to a girl in like a little pink dress. I feel like that's how most interactions end up. Yeah. And I think, well, it's funny that you mentioned it earlier when you were talking about uh, Call to the Void. Mm-hmm. By the way, don't forget, listen to Call to the Void if you should you choose and you should listener. Anyways, uh, <laughs> um, I want to give you another plug uh, shout out for that. 
Um, where was I going? Oh, yeah, I remember. You mentioned that came out in the pandemic. And mm-hmm. there was a there was an article or a study. I don't remember exactly what it was, but they found that people who watched horror regularly were a bit more mentally equipped to handle the pandemic than people who weren't who didn't watch horror regularly. And I think I think that's interesting because uh, and I, I think maybe because horror fans engage with these dark subjects in a healthy and safe way, they're able to process bad things a bit better. And I think that's what makes horror fans a little nicer than other people. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I never thought about it that way, but I think that's, I think there's truth to that. I think, yeah, creating that space to just process some harder things to swallow probably does make you to a certain extent. uh, This is such a generalization, but more, more well-adjusted potentially, or at least you have the potential to be more. I think think it's right to say the potential because, you know, generalizations can get a little dangerous, but, uh, (laughs) but like, you know, I do, and that, and here I am going to uh, say an, another generalization, but I, I think it's one that's a little true, unfortunately. I just think human beings have a inner bloodlust. You should have come to see the man beast. Uh, that was <laughs> part of part of the show was there's a line. I'm going to butcher it, but it's the line between uh, man and beast and acknowledging that there is no line and like that sort of thing. It was a werewolf show. It was, <laughs> Hell yeah. It was a werewolf show. So, you know. I said, oh, uh, man, I'm bummed I missed that. I love werewolves. Yeah, it, it was a great show. I, I really can't say enough about it. It's uh, Brittany Battelle and Jonathan Davidson starred, directed by the lovely Julia Garlot. Really, it really told a meaningful story that also, another one that had a lot of beautiful character work from from two extremely talented people and you you cared for them and you were rooting for them and there was lots of opportunities for it to not end in a tragedy and it did and it still did it was well done and sorry for spoiling the twist for anybody who may (laughs) see a production of the man beast elsewhere but seeing a woman turn into the werewolf at the end of a show is so as a woman is so satisfying the title is a red herring it is called the man beast but no the woman is the beast and it's beautiful and satisfying and and tragic yeah because uh you don't see you don't see women turning into werewolves too often uh i can only think of maybe a handful Mm -hmm. like ginger snaps is the is the example that comes to mind <laughs> trick I or treat about that yes uh yeah. i mean there's a there's a hand the howling everyone's turning into werewolves essentially <laughs> yeah you know but like that's Casual. what but like what that's three examples out of the hundreds mm-hmm. of werewolf movies there are you know um yeah. i am thinking of another one but it's a recent movie and i don't and it is like a plot twist so i don't want to spoil it but I can think of four out of hundreds. So you don't see it a lot, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, well, and, and even rarer to see it done well. And I, not to toot the horn of, of Joe Zettelmeyer too much, but I think he did a beautiful job of weaving that tale. And I imagine there's a lot of difficulty in doing a werewolf transformation on the stage. 
yeah, that was, that was, that was fun. That was fun. I stage managed this show. So there was <laughs> theater magic and I want to give it away that definitely we had to work to make that and some, uh, fun blood workings that we had to navigate figuring out how to do too. It was, <laughs> it was a lot of fun. That's awesome. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to stay good. I'm not going to put us on a werewolf tangent because it it won't be a werewolf tangent. It will be a werewolf episode. <laughs> and I can't do that yeah. to my boy, Guillermo del Toro. But I do, I do want to br- um, bring us back to the one point. And I think Guillermo del Toro kind of grapples with this in his work. But to my earlier point of like humans just have an innate uh, instinctual bloodlust, I think and I think I talked about this a couple weeks ago on the podcast. So listeners, if if this sounds familiar, I apologize. It's probably why I'm thinking about it. But like a lot of sports are very violent mm-hmm. and like but sports don't get the same kind of societal looking down that horror does even though horror is all fake, it's all special effects and fake blood and movie magic or stage magic in some mm-hmm. cases. But if you say you love horror movies, some people give you kind of like like the stink. You know what I mean? Yeah. But yeah. I everyone, mean, I think that's... Sorry. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, but you know, no one, no one bats an eye if you like football, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I really do think that it's sports are viewed with this sort of sense of honor. You know what I mean? It's it's the gladiators of the time, which is inherently yeah. violent in a lot of ways versus, I don't know, people don't view horror with honor. They view it with horror. Um, right. So I think that, that's I, fair. <laughs> I, I think that's that's the difference. But that being said, there's some very, very talented people making horror and it should be viewed yeah. with a little bit of, uh, I hesitate to say admiration oh i wouldn't because you know i I just say it admiration (laughs) admiration the talent that it takes to create those films and that sort of work on stage is in my opinion unmatched so yes admiration and i think and you know you you'll see horror fans get mad at like the academy and other award shows because a lot of times there are these amazing performances in horror movies but because they're horror movies, they don't get recognized or nominated. And there's a lot of recent examples, but I'm not going to name any because I don't feel like I don't feel like repissing people off. Uh, if you know, I... you know. <laughs> and when Guillermo del Toro won his Oscar for The Shape of Water, I was so thrilled because mm-hmm. that movie has a lot of strong horror elements. I don't think it's quite a horror film. I think Crimson Peak is a horror film. Or at, or at the very least, it has enough horror elements to be in the canon. Shape, the Shape of Water, I think, is a very strong fantasy romance with mm-hmm. a little bit of horror because there are some horrific images in that film. Yes. Yeah. I I don't think anything Del Toro does is in, like I feel like that's consciously or not just sort of his spot is is sprinkling a little bit of horror in in anything he does he's very gothic by nature even even in his non-period pieces so there's naturally some horror there um which is why i like his films um (laughs) but yeah i agree i think shape of water is definitely 
something that sort of rides the line of fantasy, horror, and romance. There, There's some awful stuff that happens in yeah. the movie, but you know, it has a happy ending. So maybe it's like Shakespeare where just because everybody got married, it's a comedy, even though there was something questionable in the middle of it. Right. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> and um, not that this is a Shape of Water episode, but uh, I really like that in that film to kind of tie it into the line of the humans are in, having an innate bloodlust. Michael Shannon's character is the real monster, mm -hmm not the creature from the black lagoon and right. i know it's yes. not i know it's not technically the creature from the black lagoon but come on it's a creature <laughs> it's his like it's his like second cousin it's close enough. yeah exactly <laughs> and i don't think the shape of water exists without the creature from the black lagoon and i think guillermo del toro would be the first to say that oh yeah absolutely you you can't look at those two creatures and not see see the influence that the creature from the black lagoon had it's there's I, no uh, way i gotta show you something i i gotta show you something uh listeners i apologize <laughs> but narrate he's he's standing he's walking across the room and coming back with a box and it has a funko that is the amphibian man that's signed that's really cool that's and so the signature cool. is uh doug jones yes incredible bringing it back that's so cool. I mean, you can't talk so about cool. you can't talk about uh, Guillermo del Toro's films without Doug Jones because they are iconic collaborators. I think, mm -hmm. yes. like Martin Scorsese and uh, Robert De Niro are uh, Martin Scorsese and Leonardo DiCaprio mm -hmm. are uh, yeah. Martin Scorsese and Joe Pesci. <laughs> <laughs> this but no, like a theme here. Yeah, art like uh. Art for like some other examples that don't have my boy, uh, Robert, um, Martin Scorsese. I love Martin Scorsese, if you can tell, but like <laughs> Joe Dante always worked with Dick Miller, you know, mm -hmm. or uh, yeah. um, I don't think it's a real Robert Rodriguez movie if I don't see Danny Trejo in it. <laughs> Doesn't count. Doesn't count. <laughs> Exactly. I, I, I'm doing the whole thing like, uh, where's my boy Danny? Like, come on, Robert. <laughs> and I think Robert yeah. Rodriguez is really good at making sure Danny gets his parts. But like, I mean, James Gunn works with a lot of the same people. Mike Flanagan is known for yeah. making roles for the same people and rotating. Yeah. Like he basically has his own acting troupe. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you find your people, right? Exactly. Exactly. And I love it, to be honest. God willing, I have a couple more projects under my belt. I'll have my team of trusted actors who I go back to, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, I mean, that's that's sort of what I was saying earlier, is, is yeah. you, you find your community that you like making stuff with. And, you know, if you're lucky, you end up being like Del Toro and, and Doug Jones and, and or Tim Burton and his little troop of people or right. or any of that yeah and not just actors too like i think one of the most iconic artistic collaborations ever is steven spielberg and john williams mm -hmm. yes absolutely yes you find people that you like making stuff with and that passion and the joy in making shines through and hopefully people appreciate that yeah and that's and I love film. a lot of those projects so special is people do sense that 
here's people that were passionate about something that that came together and just made something beautiful or exciting or or meaningful or horrific. And I love I love that about film and about theater. I was I was going to say just film, but this applies to theater as well. And you have the opportunity to bring back the same people and bring in new collaborators on every project mm-hmm. and you mix and match like um I'm going to use Christopher Nolan and his film uh, Oppenheimer as an example. A mm-hmm. lot of people who Christopher Nolan works with a bunch is an Oppenheimer. But then it's the first time he, to my knowledge, that he's worked with Robert Downey Jr. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and I mean, that's that's where the magic happens. Right. Right. In the new people, too. It's, it's great to have your your palette that you start with. But adding in a new person, a new color, keeping with the metaphor is sometimes what makes the art pop exactly and i don't know if you watched the new mike flanagan show on fall of the house of usher but like not yet not yet well i don't think i'm not going to spoil anything but you you know the cast right oh yeah yes yeah it's all like it's bruce greenwood and rahu coley Mm -hmm. and his wife (laughs) kate siegel Mm -hmm. (laughs) um people you see all the time in Mike Flanagan's work, but then also it's the first time he's worked with Mark Hamill and Mm -hmm. that's fucking Luke Skywalker. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Which like, what a dream, right? Just calling him up and be like, Hey, I've got an idea. Exactly. And, uh, and I, I guess Mike Flanagan's doing a new, a new Stephen King adaptation, the life of Chuck, because uh, Mark Hamill's going to be in that as well. Oh my gosh. And can you can you first off imagine like not only do you get to work with Luke Skywalker himself, he liked it so much that he would love to work with you again. Oh, my God. <laughs> Living the dream. Living right. the dream. So jealous. And, but, you know, that man's earned it. Like, yeah, his work is Maybe. phenomenal. <laughs> Absolutely. Un- unquestioningly. I mean, I feel like he's one of the people that's like influenced the direction that horror has gone in the last couple of years in terms oh, yeah. of how we tell our stories. So more power to him. And bring it back to Guillermo del Toro, who I think is <laughs> in yeah. the same. Well, I think they're similar and in the sense that both of their work Art horror, you know, for the most part, mm-hmm. are there. Uh, well, well, Guillermo del Toro, I think he branches away from horror a little bit more. Um, he really likes. Well, even if it's not horror, there are still monsters like Pacific Rim as the kaiju, right. Shape of Water, the creature, or the amphibian man, I should say. Right. Um, I mean, some people would argue Crimson Peak isn't horror, and I could, I could see that argument uh, too. But at the same time, there's ghosties. <laughs> there's yeah. murder well, I, they there's murder there's ghosts and it it starts out with the line of like i've always believed in ghosts or so i think that's something along those lines it, it sets itself up as a ghost story and yeah. like it yes it has these actual ghosts in it but some of the people are ghosts too and i think that that's sort of the point you know is is Sometimes ghosts don't look like the spooky specters that you expect them to. Yeah, exactly. And like, man, I just love Guillermo del Toro. But same, uh, same. But you know, he no, he like you said, he just gets it. And comparing, not I don't want to use the word comparing because I don't think that's the right word. 
but like to kind of show the the similarities between him and Mike Flanagan, they like to work with the same people, but also bring in new people. Because I think in Crimson Peak, that was the first time he worked with Tom Hiddleston and Jessica mm-hmm. Chastain. But like Charlie Hunnam, he was in Pacific Rim. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Doug Jones is in a bunch of Guillermo del Toro yeah. projects. Bern Gorman was in a bunch of del Toro projects. Um, Nightmare Alley, which came out of recently, that has Jim Beaver, who's also in Crimson Peak. I think it's mm-hmm. the first time he worked with Bradley Cooper and Willem Dafoe and Kate Blanchett. But, you know, Ron Perlman is in and Ron Perlman and Guillermo del Toro's worked a bunch together. Uh, Richard mm-hmm. Jenkins yeah. was in Shape of Water and in Nightmare. Al- so I just like film families. I is that yeah is I guess what I'm trying to say. And also that late Life of Chuck sh- uh, movie I was telling you about. I believe that's going to be the first collaboration between Mike Flanagan and Tom Hiddleston. Oh, cool. Oh, cool. <laughs> oh, good. You're getting me very excited for this movie. It's going to be so good. And uh. The series, rather. Yeah. Uh, I think it's a movie. I'm pretty sure. Is it a movie? Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be a movie. Good to know. And I guess he's doing it independently, and he got his SAG waivers because he was able to announce it. Yeah, true, true. Good point. I didn't even think about the the strike still still going on. At the time of recording, hopefully, hopefully hopefully when this episode comes out, strike's long, long done. We're hoping. Yeah, they're, they're, uh can't think of the word negotiating Negotiating. yeah negotiating as we as we speak hoping for a hoping for a good deal i very much want the strikes to end because you know it's horrible but at the same time it's on the studios yeah on the studios yeah do the right thing like it shouldn't be this hard makes me mad (laughs) yeah yeah Mm, i won't go down that path (laughs) i could get on a soapbox pay your people (laughs) and don't take advantage of them I'll, i'll leave it at that and you know what the fact that you have to say more than that is what's wrong with this picture. You know what I mean? <laughs> mm-hmm, it should mm-hmm. be, it should be, that should be the end of it, you know, but I'll, I'll spare our listeners for today. <laughs> <laughs> this time. This time. Exactly. And that, that's something I, I appreciate with directors like Guillermo del Toro and Mike Flanagan is uh, they're really good at working with actors. Mm-hmm. Because like Crimson Peak, which I think I should talk about a little bit more on the Crimson Peak episode. We were a little tangenty today. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. My my fault, my fault. But that has, well, first off, it's just a great cast. Mm-hmm. But they are putting like so much excellent work. Like some of the, some of the looks Tom Hiddleston gives, especially when he gets spoiler alert, stabbed in the fucking face. <laughs> right? Like, okay, I worked at a movie theater when this film came out. Uh, and I spoiled the movie for myself because I had to go and do theater checks. So I was walking in and out of theaters. Mm-hmm. And I happened to walk in and see that part of the film and just totally like involuntarily yelled from the side of the theater because I walked in like just as it happened. It's such there's so much just in that one look. You could probably write a paper on it, to be honest. Pick it apart for like an acting masterclass. He's so good. 
I also you got me rambling now. I could talk You're about Hiddleston's acting in this film forever. I especially appreciate, and I only noticed this on like I think the last time, if not the time before, that I watched this film. Of you know, the first time I watched it, I felt like he was kind of schmackty. You could tell that he's acting in the yeah. first half of the film, and I realized that that's on purpose. I realized that that is on purpose because he's manipulating Edith up to that point. And you start losing that fake acty feeling the more he lets his guard down around her and the more he cares about her. He he loses that acty feeling. And I was like, that is such a clever, specific choice. And I can't believe I didn't pick up on it until so much later. Because, you know, it's been almost a decade since this movie came out at this point. And I'm still noticing choices that all of these actors made. And it's this is a film I've only watched once. Like I said, I'm late to this game. But I <laughs> love films that just, they enrich every time you watch them. Yeah. And I think, well, Guillermo del Toro is a master of film. I don't think that's a hot take. I think most people would agree with that. And you know what? If you don't agree with that, you could fight me. I don't fucking care. But uh, <laughs> but no, I do think Guillermo del Toro is a master of filmmaking of the craft. And that's why his films are so rich with moment moments like that, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know if you if you had the opportunity to watch any of the behind the scenes stuff for this film at all. But the details that went into this film and just getting the opportunity to see the way that he did work with the actors on this film and the way that he did work with the people that did play the ghosts because they did, they did use some CGI on the ghosts, oh, yeah. but for the most part, that's people there in some sort of incredible makeup. Shout out to the SFX team in, on mm -hmm. this film. Seriously, they, they deserve all the awards. He was there enthusiastic about all of it. And you could just see in, in the little bit of glimpses, just this absolute joy that he had at bringing this film together. And, and I don't know it, it there's something so special about watching somebody so there in making yeah. their craft. And I think he was there on this film. And I think, I think that just proves my point that he is a master because mm -hmm. like Crimson Peak is uh it's his one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, his ninth film. First off, a lot of a lot of people don't make it to nine films. Yeah. But it's his ninth film and he still has that joy, that spark, that passion. Mm -hmm. I think that's that's, you know, I, I think that's a master at work because like you don't always get that. Because that this industry are and just capitalism in general can just grind you down and beat you down and just jade you. But I don't you don't get that from Guillermo del Toro. And the fact that you bring up like you see the passion in his eyes in in the glimpses of behind the scenes. I think that's beautiful. Yeah, I think obviously I've never met the man. I would love the opportunity to meet him. But he just yeah. he does seem like somebody who does remember how lucky we are to be able to do uh, what we do in making film, in making theater and in, in making podcasts. And, you know, I think, I think when you are able to hold on to that joy and hold on to the humbleness of, of like, yes, he's done the work to get to where he is. Obviously yeah. he's done that. 
but there is still luck involved and there is still passion involved. And that's, if you lose that, that's when you should stop in my yes. opinion, because if you're just doing it for the money, you're doing it for the wrong reasons. You're, you are in the wrong profession if you are doing this for money. And when you look at the masters, okay, a lot of them have money, like, yeah, but you still see in Steven Spielberg's latest movies, he still has that spark, whether it's West Side Story or the Fablemans. Mm-hmm. And honestly, like West Side Story and the Fablemans is some of his best work in 20 years. Yeah, yes. And he's still yes. kicking ass. <laughs> Martin Scorsese's new film, like the man is 80 and he's that's a hell of a picture. I haven't seen that one. I can't speak to that one. I've seen I've seen Fables, uh, Fablemans and I've seen... West Side, but I haven't seen Scorsese's latest film. Well, sometimes you just gotta trust trust the masters, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I trust it. I trust it. Trust but, the masters. um, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but like, and to bring it back to Del Toro, like even when he tweets about film, there's passion in it because mm-hmm. we're talking about Steven Spielberg's West Side Story, which is one of my favorite films of this decade so far. I know we're three years in, but wow um i knew it was gonna be good because i knew it was gonna be good because of spielberg but like i'm sorry a quick little tangent you gotta have some balls to remake what's probably the greatest movie musical ever made yeah i was shocked when i heard that they were doing a remake i was like really i mean go for it but really and i was like uh who, who, what loser did they get to do this? Oh, Steven Spielberg. Okay. Maybe they have a shot. He is kind of, right. he is Steven Spielberg, my favorite filmmaker and my favorite musical. And I was like, there's no way I'm going to like this because it sounds way too up my alley. And you know mm-hmm. what? I loved it. It was my favorite movie of 2021. And of course it was gorgeous too. Of course it was yeah. like just gorgeous to watch because it's Spielberg. Right. And it's like, how do you, in in my opinion, he improved on the original movie mm-hmm. adaptation. I remember thinking when they announced that, I was like, if anybody's going to be able to do it, it's going to be Spielberg. However, right. I'm still skeptical. Yeah. But no, but that's like, like you said, it's great. And, you know, he's said for years how long he's wanted to do a musical. And I'm like, well, I kind of wish you've always done musicals and i you know i love that he does all types of genres but i'm like man i kind of wish for a little more steven spielberg musicals than what we got okay. see what the next decade brings us right now that he's done it maybe that'll right? be his bag for the next 10 years but i'm selfish and i also kind of want him to make an at least one more straight up horror movie <laughs> yeah yeah are you listening mr spielberg Oh, I'm sure he listens to my little podcast. (laughs) Because, I mean, the last horror movie he did was War of the Worlds. Mm -hmm. And that one, that one, I think people could argue if if it's horror or not. I think it is because it fucked me up when I was 10 years old. Shout out to my mom taking me to see that in theaters. I think everybody has like a one Spielberg movie that scared the life out of them when they were a kid. And depending on your generation, I think it's uh, I think it's War of the Worlds, Jurassic Park or Jaws. Yep. (laughs) Yes. Yes, absolutely. I kind (laughs) of jumped the gun. It was Jaws for me. But um, to bring it back to Del Toro so we can bring it back to uh, (laughs) uh, the fourth time. Yeah. The reason why I brought up 
Spielberg's West Side Story is uh, Guillermo del Toro had a whole tweet thread explaining why he loved the Mambo high school dance scene in West Side Story. I mean, it's one thing for me to geek out about Steven Spielberg's direction of that scene. Iconic. It was beautiful. But like for Guillermo del Toro, who's done his fair share of amazing technical work from a filmmaking craft standpoint for him to go on this beautiful Twitter thread and geek out about another filmmaker's work. I think that just shows how much passion and love Guillermo del Toro still has for film and cinema. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you can tell it's, he's not just passionate about his work. He is passionate about film and, and stories. And that's just so great. I, it's very endearing to me. And I think it is part of why he is one of my favorites because he is, you know, he's just another person, just another person, air quotes right. again, who who is really, really passionate about good story and, and appreciating what goes into making a film or good theater. I think that's, I think you nailed it. I, uh, I love that <laughs> sentiment. And I think that's a perfect, I think that's a perfect way to end this episode. But we're not going to, because I got to ask, if you found yourself in Crimson Peak, would oh. you die? <laughs> would I die? Probably. Like, realistically, yeah. probably. It's like, I don't know. I don't know if I could take on Lucille. She, she's know. a motherfucker. Yeah, like, like I, I give her that. <laughs> like, of all, I could, I could handle the ghosts. I could handle the spookiness because they're not really threats. But like, Lucille is a threat, capital T threat. And if she set her eyes on me, I don't know. I don't think I'd find my way out of that manner. I really don't. And she'll make it hurt. Yeah, she might stab you in the face, or she might break a sink with your face. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, yeah. S slowly poison you while making you think she's making you all better. Throw you off the stairs, you know, choose your, literally, choose your poison. <laughs> and, you know, you can only hope to be lucky and have the poison uh, option. Because yeah. yeah, all the well, other options seem really painful. Yeah, I don't know that the poison wasn't unpainful. Okay, that's that fair. That, pain, that, that seemed rather uncomfortable. I mean, it was like liquefying her, her lungs a little bit there for a second. That that is fair, but I I'd rather be poisoned than have my face bashed into a sink repeatedly multiple times to the yeah, point where I, my face is no longer a face. Yeah, th just throw me off the stairs. Honestly, if I had to pick like one of the deaths, just throw me off the stairs, and hopefully <laughs> it actually kills me. Unlike what happens in the film. Oh, and poor Edith. She gets poisoned and she gets thrown. And thrown off the stairs and cut multiple times. And, you know, she's yeah. fine. She's fine. Um, uh, she makes Asterix it. by fine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> she lives. Maybe. Fair. Does she? Is she fine? Debatable. But she lives. Yeah. It's like uh, so... uh, uh, the end of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, yeah, it's she the lived. end of every... It's the end of every horror, not every horror movie, but most horror movies, they live. Whether yeah. they're okay or not is up to you, I suppose, but they live. Yeah, we'll we'll find out in the sequel, maybe. <laughs> if they live uh, past the beginning of the sequel. Right, which that's not always the case. No, this has been this has been a lot of fun. I uh I, I wanna thank you for 
one being the reason I finally saw this movie because I really I really adored it. And, you know, shame on me for not having seen it sooner. Yeah, you've been missing out. I'm telling I you. I have been missing. I've been a I've been a bad Guillermo del Toro fan, so I sincerely apologize. Uh, but I, I've seen the light now because I've seen Crimson. It was awesome. So thank you so much for that. Thank you so much for being on the show. And uh, what do you got coming up and where can people find you? Yeah, well, thank you for having me before I say all of that. Genuinely, it's it's been a ton of fun, ton of fun, just babbling for the last hour <laughs> and a half. People can find me on uh, Instagram at ACBuckholt. That's B as in boy, U-C-H-A-L-T. Or you can visit my website at Amanda Buckhalter. That's B-U-C-H-A-L-T-E-R.com. And then don't forget to listen to the Call of the Void podcast, which you can find on any podcast listening platform. Awesome. Thank you so much once again. This has been a great, a great chat, I think. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been, like I said, tons of fun. I'm glad we got to, and I'm glad you watched Crimson Peak. <laughs> Thank you for listening to today's episode. Thanks again to Amanda for joining me today and for picking Crimson Peak as the topic. I'm so glad I finally watched that movie. And if you haven't already, I really, really recommend it. It's a wonderful film. A reminder, I just became an affiliate for Fangoria, one of the premier brands in horror. I definitely recommend checking out their magazine and even subscribing. And if you decide to do that, don't forget to use the promo code WouldYouDieShow for 20% off your entire order. You can find the show's social media on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at WouldYouDieShow. Also, now you can follow me on TikTok at WouldYouDiePodcast. You can find the Would You Die YouTube show on the Three Wise Men Media YouTube channel, where you can also find professional wrestling, trailer reviews, and much, much more. The music you hear in the beginning and end of each episode is composed by my friend Josie Palmer. Next week, we are talking about the manliest movie ever made. It's one of my favorite movie monsters of all time, and I'm so glad it's finally a topic on this show. It surprises me that I never... I mean, I've talked about this monster a bunch, but he's never been a uh, episode topic. So uh, I'm glad we're finally fixing that. Until next time, I'm Austin Torres. Try not to die.